Okay, going to be in Psalm 119 again this morning. Gonna continue our series. Now I don't know about y'all, but I'm the kind of guy who not only tries to recommend books that I think are really good. Sometimes, in certain circumstances, I'll even buy them for others if I'm able. Uh, graduation is kind of one of those special times, and the, the book that I have bought and given more than any other book is a book called The Holy Wild by Mark Buchanan. Ty, you got one, right? Yeah, so uh, he's an example. Um, I stumbled across this particular book at just the right time in my life. It was a time when I felt God calling me to something special, but I didn't know if I was ready. I still had a lot of doubts about God, about Christianity, about the church, about everything, really. Um, I was a bundle of uncertainty at that time. I've been a follower of Jesus uh, for almost 10 years then, uh, since my experience that I've talked about on the South Rim. Um, and I've done a bit of part-time work with youth and college students in churches and uh, different ministries. I've been involved in uh, discipleship with a pastor and some other men who were about 10 to 15 years older than me. Uh, I was growing in the faith. But I wasn't sure that I wanted to give up my dream to become a full-time minister. I wasn't sure I wanted to go to seminary. I didn't trust the path forward that God seemed to be laying out for me. And I was having a hard time trusting God at all, really. Uh, I knew a lot about God, and I could teach others those things and challenge them, but I was stuck, personally. And that's when I found this book about venturing out into the holy wild and trusting in the character of God along the way. And at one point in the book, author Mark Buchanan writes, none of it depends on you. It all depends on the God who promised. And he is always true to himself. I needed to hear this. I still need to hear it. Because at the time, I had misunderstood who God is. I had misconstrued what God is like. I had taken the word of people who claimed to speak for God, and I had trusted in them instead of the Lord himself. And I had misplaced my faith and my loyalty. But the Holy Wild book didn't solve all my problems, with doubt or with anything else. It, it, it did give me a direction to face, and then a path to tread. And it helped me realign my faith and set my loyalty at the foot of God's throne. It set me on the adventure of faith in a way that I'd never even envisioned before. And I've been on that journey ever since. Stumbling, but mostly forward. Trusting in the character of a God who is always true to his promises. Whether or not I even always believe that. Whether or not I always like the way things are going, the way things seem to be headed, or whether or not I feel like doing things God's way, whether or not I agree with the way God's directing me. And moving here was like that. 
We left Richardson and moved out here in 2007, that was in Alpine, uh, only to find ourselves returning to Richardson after things went sideways only two years later. The idea of doing it all again, it wasn't really that appealing. I had serious doubts. I didn't want to uproot my family again. But when God opened the door, we walked through it. And it has been an adventure like no other. One that I wouldn't trade for anything. And today as we dig into the text, we're going to see, I think, maybe a similar story unfold. Definitely a similar challenge. We're going to consider what it means to trust in the character of God. So follow along with me, if you will. We're going to read in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 65. <coughs> you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good. And do good. Teach me your statutes. And the insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. So this section begins with the author recognizing that the Lord has dealt well with him. According to his word. Which is really just another way of saying God kept a promise. Now this week at VBS, we talked all about this kind of stuff. We learned that God loves us no matter what. That God is with us everywhere. That God is in charge. That God is stronger than anything. And that God is surprising. Awesome God. Right? That's what we all said. These are all characteristics of God that we see in the story of Scripture. For the people of Israel who had returned from their exile in Assyria, it was like starting all over in a familiar place. Which is what it was like for us to come back out here. We loved our time in Alpine, even though it was short and ended in an incredibly disappointing manner. But returning... It's a whole other thing. I imagine that like us, the Jewish people who returned to Israel after the exile were nervous about what would happen, about how God would provide. 
about what trusting in the Lord with all their hearts even looked like in that situation and about how this time might be different. I'm pretty sure we all have similar struggles with our faith. At least that we have struggles, right? That trusting in the character and promise of God can be difficult a lot of the time. But isn't it better to be in the will of God than anywhere else? You know, I, even if we're uncomfortable, even if we have to trust in what we can't see, I mean, isn't that what faith is all about? Isn't that what we read in 11, uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, where it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Contrary to what we hear from a lot of sort of the Christian evangelical voices out there, faith is not about certainty. It's, about, it's not about knowing all the things. It's about confidence and conviction in the one who made the promise. And that depends entirely on whether or not we trust in the character of God. Because all too often, we don't. We trust in ourselves. We trust in what we can see. And we fear taking any step in any direction that isn't clear, wide open in front of us, that, that anything that doesn't make sense to us, that isn't in line with what we think or what we want. So when we get to verse 66, where the psalmist asked the Lord to teach them good judgment and knowledge, that's actually a step of trust. They're displaying trust in the judgment of God. Having followed their own desires, Israel had ended up being overthrown, and they were made slaves in another country far away from their home. They had seen what doing things their way would bring. And now that they had returned from exile, they wanted to follow God's way, to pay attention to God's judgment, to go where God wanted them to go and to do what God wanted them to do to step into the wilderness of the unknown and trust God along the way. Now, we tend to define good judgment as common sense, as the ability to see things for what they are, but that's not all good judgment is. There is clearly a spiritual element to it as well, an aspect of good judgment that, just, that doesn't just come from life experience. Because the psalmist asked for the Lord to teach them good judgment, as if it wasn't something they could acquire on their own through other means. And this is the part of good judgment that shines a light on our own judgment, our own discernment, or lack of. It's the element that comes through the power of the Holy Spirit within us. But the bit that questions all the other bits for example, when we are presented with a way to do something and that way seems good to us, that's an example. It, maybe it makes sense and it, and it seems right, but in Proverbs 14, 12, we read that there is a way that seems right to a man, a man, but in the end is death. This means that our own judgment is not always good. But we, we all know that already, right? 
still we consistently rely on our own judgment. Why? Well, in my case, it was because I didn't really trust God. didn't trust Him at all. Uh, but isn't that essentially the case for all of us? We know we should. We may even want to. But ultimately, our actions show that we don't always trust God. We trust ourselves. Even though we have trusted ourselves before and gotten hurt. The kind of good judgment we are reading about here is the kind that only comes from the Holy Spirit. The kind that takes a step back when everything seems good to us and goes, wait a minute. See, what seemed good to me 10 years ago was staying put in Richardson. We had a house with a good landlord that we got along with really well, took care of things quickly. We had good schools, we had good jobs. We had friends nearby. We had access to good grocery stores with all the conveniences of a big city, everything that you could possibly want, right? So when the door began to open for us to come to Marathon, I was super skeptical. I didn't want to take a risk. It seemed crazy to leave what we had. But the Holy Spirit kept moving forward causing us to question all the things we thought we knew about what God wanted from us at the time. God's good judgment motivated us to move forward, to walk through the open door, to take the risk. And here we are, 10 years later. We love this town. We love this area. We wouldn't trade it for anything. That doesn't mean it's been easy. There have been difficult situations. We've had to make hard choices. We've cried out to God in tearful prayers about various things. But we are convinced that this is where God wants us. To paraphrase what Arlene said during Bible study on Wednesday evening, you can only really tell after the fact, right? It's mostly hindsight. But trusting in God, that's about the present it may help us to look back and to see how God has moved before, but ultimately we have to trust in the Lord in the moment. And that's not easy. It can be difficult, scary, disorienting. It can stir up our doubts. But if we lean into what the Holy Spirit has for us, we will always end up better off than And that leads us back to the big question here. In verse 68, the psalmist wrote that the Lord is good and does good. So why don't we trust God? And if we don't really trust God, if, if our actions prove that we don't, then why do we call God good? Now here's the thing. I think that if I asked for a show of hands right now, everyone in here would agree that God is good. Right? I think everybody would raise their hand. It's not a problem in here. We all tend to believe that God is good in the sanctuary on Sunday morning. It's when we get the devastating news on Tuesday. That's when things shift. It's when we don't get the outcome we were looking for when we prayed for someone or something. 
It's when the answers we keep getting from God don't line up with what we want to hear. Whether or not we really think God is good is tested day in and day out. And whether or not we will trust in Him to be good and do good never gets a day off. Because we are always being asked to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not to our own understanding. But if we really believe that the Lord is good, we will lean into the Holy Spirit with trust. So how do we know that the Lord is good? Is it because only good things happen to us? Is it because everything goes our way? Is it because we have health and wealth? Is it because God always answers our prayers the way we want? Or is it because of something else? I'll tell you what it is for me. And it isn't because I read it in this psalm. In fact, I have a pretty hard time with a lot of the depictions of God in the Old Testament, just to be honest. I don't fully understand them. They don't seem like love and light and life to me. But then I look at Jesus, and everything gets much clearer. Because Jesus was good in every possible way. He helped the needy by feeding them and clothing them and healing them. He spoke out against the corrupt religious system and its oppressive ways that made life difficult for the people. He went into the place where they were taking advantage of others and he flipped their tables over. He taught people that God loved them. That God wanted a relationship with them that he had been sent by their Heavenly Father to let everyone know. And then, he was humiliated, and beaten, and tortured, and crucified. The Jewish religious leaders stirred up the crowd, and then the Romans teamed up with them to make it all happen. But then, on Sunday morning, he walked out of the tomb. Did all this because he wasn't willing to let hatred and darkness and death destroy his creation. He wasn't willing to let the terrible things overpower the good. He wasn't willing to stand back and watch as we joined in and got wiped out as a result. Now, I've heard a lot of answers to this question before, but my answer is simply this I believe God is good because of Jesus. Because when I was sitting with my feet dangling off the south rim, the Lord spoke to me and told me he wasn't like all the horrible people who had hurt me in his name. God made it clear to me that he loved me no matter what. And then when I read the scriptures for myself, I saw with my own eyes that Jesus was good. That he wasn't like all the negative things that I had experienced in church because he really is love and light and life. I met Jesus in real life and then I found out more about him in the pages of the Bible. And I think a lot of people follow a version of Jesus that they have been taught in some church, maybe growing up or something. A version that maybe fits an agenda. A version that agrees with them and their way of seeing things whether it's Jesus who is, isn't really concerned with people's sin, or a Jesus who is far too interested in people exercising morality. 
most of the time. The versions of Jesus they are following are they're actually just a version of themselves. They have twisted the Son of God into sort of a puppet that will reassure them that they're right. Maybe there's a connection here. I don't know. In verses 71 and 75, the author makes an interesting statement about who God is. In 71, they imply that affliction is good because it led them to desire God's way. And then in 75, the author claimed that the Lord afflicted them. And this is a tough subject to discuss because people tend to have very strong opinions about it. About whether God is in complete control of everything or not. About whether God needs to be in control of everything or not. The word omnipotent gets thrown around quite a bit in these discussions. That's uh, omni, all potent, power, all powerful. Some folks still use the term almighty, same thing, basically. But often these discussions get wrapped up in theories about the unlimited power of God. But in a practical sense, this was really about dominion, about the extent of rule a king might have. In other words, how far does his kingdom reach? What are the boundaries or borders of his kingdom? Now, the Greek word there that's used is pantokratori. I think I said that right. I hope I did. It shows up ten times in the New Testament, and all but one of these are in the book of Revelation. In every case, it's translated as almighty. But when we think of that, our minds tend to go to, like, strength, Right? In the text, it's a reference to the extent of God's kingdom reign. It's a noticeable shift from the language of God's kingdom having only to do with the land of Israel. And after the resurrection, God's kingdom was spreading. It was engulfing all other kingdoms. Not by might, not by power, but by God's Spirit. In time, it would overcome the entire world. There would be nowhere left that God's kingdom had not reached. And the New Testament authors used the term pantocrator to describe the worldwide reach of God's kingdom. This is still the case now. God's kingdom has no borders. It extends everywhere. And this is maybe most profoundly true in our hearts, in the core of our being. <clears throat> whether we like it or not, the world is the Lord's, along with everything in it, including us. We may try to run our own programs, but in the end, we will be held responsible for them and their results. Because God is Pantocrator, the ruler of all. The ruler of a kingdom with no borders. And this brings us around to the author's thoughts on affliction. In verses 71 and 75, the Hebrew word there used there is ana, which means to be brought low or bowed down in terms of oppression. To be treated harshly. 
But this author was saying that it was good for them to be oppressed and treated harshly by the Assyrians and Babylonians. And that because it turned out for good in the long run, ultimately, God must have been behind that oppression, orchestrating it, controlling it. But is God a God of oppression? Does God cause pain and suffering? Or does God reach into the pain and suffering that we cause to bring about some good? Does God allow us the ability to make our own choices and reap the consequences? Or does God orchestrate our every move, our every thought, our every action? Maybe this songwriter didn't fully understand God. Maybe they thought of God in either or terms, where God must be in control of everything or in control of nothing. But what if God is much more mysterious and surprising than that? What if Israel being overthrown and taken into their oppressive captivity was a direct result of their own choices and actions? For example, if I throw a bowling ball into the air above my head, and then it comes down and smacks me, should I blame myself or should I blame God? I mean, God may have made gravity to work in a certain way, but I'm the one throwing the bowling ball, right? This is basically what happened with Israel. They threw the bowling ball by doing things their way. Then they got hit by it and blamed God for gravity. When they finally got back to Israel, they had to deal with the fallout. It's as if they got home and thought, okay, God made gravity to work in a certain way, so no more throwing bowling balls in the air. But thank God we learned that lesson the hard way. Here's why that's not the case. Here's how we can know the Lord has revealed He is not the one throwing bowling balls and orchestrating pain and suffering and oppression. Just look at Jesus. Did Jesus come to cause pain and suffering? Did he arrive on earth as one of us to oppress some of us? Or did Jesus come to teach people a better way? Did he arrive to feed and clothe and heal people? Did he live among us as one of us so that we might see what life beyond measure is like? And then, did he take our pain and suffering and oppression onto the cross so that we might experience freedom? Did he rise from the dead on Sunday morning so that we might experience life beyond measure? Did Jesus come to bring affliction or to end it? In John 10.10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Not oppressed life. Not afflicted life. Abundant life. Life beyond measure. Some folks seem to have God confused with the thief who comes to steal and kill and destroy. But we see God most clearly in Jesus, who came to bring us life. 
We read in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. And in both 2 Corinthians 4.4 and Colossians 1.15, we read that Jesus is the image of God. So that when we look at him, we see the Father. But what all this means is that the writers of the New Testament had a clearer picture of who God was than the writers of the Old Testament. Because they had seen Jesus. And they'd been with Jesus. They'd seen him up close and personal. And then they had been given the Holy Spirit to take up residence within them and give them that life beyond measure, just like Jesus promised. In verse 77, the psalmist asked for mercy. Right alongside the claim that the law was their delight. And this is the thing I think so many Christians seem to misunderstand somehow. Jesus' death on the cross was the end of the law. That's what Paul wrote in Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The justice that we desire and the mercy that we crave, they arrived at the same time. Sin and death the very reason for the law were dealt with on the cross. That's justice. And as a result, all of humanity receives God's mercy. Just as Paul wrote in Romans 11.32, in Jesus, we get both. And this brings us to verse 80, where the songwriter asked for a blameless heart and to be without shame. We can't have a blameless heart through the law. As we saw in Galatians 3.10, to be under the law is a curse. And Paul wrote in Galatians 5.4 that anyone who wants to be justified by the law would be severed from Christ and had fallen away from grace. The only way for our hearts to be blameless and without shame is to be in Christ. To trust fully in Him and what He accomplished on the cross. There is no other way. But if we don't get just we don't just get to uh, the salvation part. We get to have the salvation and then go on about our lives. To be saved by Jesus means to be changed from hatred to love, from darkness to light, from death to life, from one world and way of life to another world and way of life. From the safety and comfort of the life we had always known to the risk and adventure of the life beyond measure that God wants to give us. The kind of life the Holy Spirit will pour into us if we'll just get out of our own way. Trusting in the character of God may not be easy. It may require us to move outside of our own comfortable areas into unknown. But as long as we are with God, it will be the only place we will find the kind of life we are looking for. The kind of life we can only find in the holy wild when we trust in the character of God with all our hearts and don't lean on our own understanding. Will you pray with me?